one of the things they have to manage is change management. And you cannot manage change cognitively. It has to be managed from an EQ standpoint. And most of the coaching that I've done over my 50 years has been coaching C-suite officers in people skills. I do not remember a single client where I was coaching on lack of cognitive skills. So people get promoted based on smarts and fail based on people skills. have ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual team and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional performers in athletics, music, entertainment, and business, so we can all learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. What makes a leader great? Is it a big personality with a compelling vision, or is it the combination of intelligence and integrity? Our guest for this episode of 12 Geniuses is Dr. Robert Eigenger. For half a century, he has studied and researched the competencies of leaders, the good ones and the bad ones. He's authored more than 100 articles and books on leadership while coaching thousands of people from first-time managers to Fortune 500 CEOs. Dr. Eichinger, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. You've been at this leadership thing for about 50 years. Can you describe your background and how you became interested in the topic of leadership? Well, it was uh, by mistake when I was, uh, I think, a sophomore in college. I needed a course on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And by the time I got to the registration office, the only course remaining was on personnel psychology and being a farm boy from Minnesota, I thought it was misspelled. I thought it was personal psychology. I'd never heard of the term personnel. So I took a psychology course, and literally that's what got me to where I am today. And when you think about the biggest changes over your career that have altered what it takes to be an effective leader, what are a couple of things that come to mind? Well, I think more recently we're getting into how the brain works, and there's a sort of a field called neuroleadership. And for my 50 years, I've been treating the outside of the body as a coach and a mentor and a therapist. Now that we know how the brain works and we're beginning to know how the brain works and how that relates to leadership behavior, my insight into people, I think, has gotten deeper and my coaching better because now I'm coaching the whole person. So that's probably been the biggest change. It had to happen at the end of your career, right? Yes, it, <laughs> it was amazing. a little late. Yeah, I, I think I started uh, really studying this in 2009. So I've sort of dedicated all my extra time to the study of neuroleadership for the past decade. I wish that it had come earlier. It would have changed my life. <laughs> but there weren't very many people who were studying this particular topic even before you started to, right? Not in the leadership area. I mean, they've been studying the brain, of course, for centuries. But in my education, the brain was never mentioned. And I've talked to a lot of my colleagues, and in their academic preparation, there was no course on brain. But 
Recently, the University of Minnesota, for instance, has a brain minor, behavioral brain minor, and a lot of the colleagues that I speak to now who are younger are beginning to take that into account in their training. So the brain is now seeping into IO psychology. And what have you learned about the brain that's been transformational for you? Well, the, the interesting thing is neuroplasticity. That is, uh, I think, a decade ago, the meme was that the brain is what it is, and it is what it is, and you can't do anything to change it. Now we know that that's completely incorrect, that it's very plastic and uh, can change based on environmental or toxic reasons, but now it can change because of a technology called mindfulness, that is, you can gain control over a lot of what your brain does by going through brain exercises. So that's new, and it's the second thing is an understanding of the automatic brain. It's called automaticity. Because of how the body works, most of the body is operated by the brain outside of your awareness. So a lot of what your body does every day is automatic breathing and blood circulation and hormone flow and digestion, and all that stuff you don't think about. You don't direct that activity. So we're beginning to get a better understanding of why it's said that people resist change. And it turns out that part of your brain resists change. Most people in full awareness don't reject change, but it turns out that your automatic brain does. And that automatic brain is very efficient, right? It has to be efficient. It has uh, limited energy to work on. And if the body has a choice to operate itself efficiently or think great thoughts, it will operate itself efficiently. So it has about 25 watts of power to work with. 2% of the size of the body is the brain, but it takes up 20% of the energy. And so it has to operate efficiently. And then it has these automatic habitual routines that it does. And understanding those routines uh, helps you a lot in leadership behavior and understanding why people do what they do. As we're watching our political situation here in the United States, there's something called the confirmation bias. And the brain actually resists taking in counter information to your belief system as a survival mechanism because it sees counter-information as a threat. So we have um, the majority of the population of the United States now has one of two views. It will not take in information on the opposing view. And therefore, from a brain standpoint, at least, there is no way out of the divisiveness that we're seeing. And you're saying that's because it's easier, right? It's it's easier to have this confirmation bias than actually go and, and research the information and, and use another part if, of your brain? If you got up each day and said, uh, this is a new day, I'm going to take in information as information, I'm not going to prejudge the information coming in, and I'm going to seek out diversity of information because at the end of each day, I want to go to sleep knowing that I've made the best choices and have the best beliefs and values that I can, that is not done. So it turns out that innovation and change and creativity takes up more energy than routine. So people pretty much are nest builders and they operate inside the box. 
and the brain, the automatic brain, and, and just for cutesy, I call it auto, O-T-T-O. So uh, auto, who's in everybody's head, prefers to stick with what it thinks and what it knows and what it's decided. And so that it doesn't have to take up three additional watts of information, it would prefer not to rethink through attitudes, biases, beliefs, opinions. I've heard you refer to U1 and U2 as different parts of your brain. Can you talk a little bit about what the distinction of those are? I think you've mentioned a little bit about it already, but I want to hear you talk about the way that those different parts of your brain work. Keeping in mind that if you did an autopsy, there's not a U1 and a U2 brain. So this is just a teaching metaphor, but the U1 brain is the brain that runs your body. It's automatic, runs the nine organs that you have. So in the same sense that you don't direct your kidney each morning to do what it is you want it to do that day, the kidney and the liver and the spleen and the appendix and the digestive system pretty much do what it does each day automatically in response to environmental stimuli and what you happen to be doing. It also is the emotional brain. So it's the limbic system and the amygdala. And for the most part, it has first call on the brain's resources. So whoever designed the brain system decided that the fight or flight response or the threat management system has first call over the other part of the brain, the U2 brain, which is the thinking part of the brain and the reflectivity part of the brain. That brain is slower. And uh, Dan Kenneman wrote a great book called Slow Thinking and Fast Thinking about that. And the thinking brain is a wonderful thing, but it's slow. And the U1 is charged with keeping you out of harm. And Everybody understands the physical nature of that. That is, before you even know if a stick is a snake or not out in the woods, U1 will jump out of the the way and back up before U2 has even looked at it to consider what it is. And you can physically feel this, right? Oh, you can feel it. It it operates about 0.5 seconds faster than U2. And it has to do that, because if you have to get out of the way of a car that's blown a tire and it's heading toward you on the sidewalk, you don't have time to calculate the distances and decide whether or not that car is going to hit you or not. Your U1 gets you out of the way. Now, unfortunately, uh, the threat mechanism or the fight or flight also relates to work behavior and people. So that whole system works where a person is in in your environment, and if you too believes that that person is a threat to you in any way, it will act like it acts getting out of the way of a snake. We've had this conversation a number of times, and I've heard you speak a number of times as well. And as I've started to process U1 and U2, one of the things that has seemed to resonate for me is that U1 does keep you alive, and U2 allows you to flourish. Is that... That's, That's correct. Well, and remember there's U3, which, which is the muscle, the, the brain muscle you build up when you do mindfulness practices. And U3 manages the balance between U1 and U2. So U1 is very helpful. As you say, it keeps us alive, keeps the blood doing what it's supposed to do and the hormones doing what they're supposed to do. 
without any intercession from you. But on the other hand, it makes us do dumb stuff, and we have memes that uh, we say count to ten before you, and the end of that sentence is before you do something you're later going to regret. Well, that means that you, one, decided on an action before it consulted you, too. So hitting your boss in a meeting is not a good idea, but anger management would probably allow you, one, to do that, and then you would regret that later as you're on the unemployment line. So U1 does all sorts of things. People say, why did you do that? And they'll say, why I lost my mind. Well, what that means is U2 wasn't functioning. So U3 is in charge of detecting what U1 is doing. And you have about a half a second to prevent U1 from taking an automatic action. And during that half second, U3 has to engage U2 to say, okay, Here's the situation, here's the stimulus, here's what's happening. U1 has suggested action A. What do you think about that? And U2 would say, well, that certainly would would work, but action B and action C would get me 80% of the impact but have no negative consequences. So I would suggest you talk to U1 and see if you could have auto move over to action B or action C. Now, all of that has to happen in half a second, which it can. But that's basically getting control of the negative downstream consequences of what you one can do. And in leadership, lots of leaders have anger management issues. They have impatience issues. They are dismissive. They're narcissistic. They do all sorts of things that comes out of you one. So uh, when we teach executive mindfulness, what we're trying to do is to get executives to be able to observe and monitor and stop temporarily what their U1 wants to do in this situation, in this meeting, or in this speech with shareholders, and consider whether there are better paths. And to the extent that you can do that, we think that your performance would greatly increase. I want to talk about the brain and change and how you get leaders to change their behaviors. But before we do that, I want to talk about your days at Lominger, a firm that you founded, and the feedback that you used to gather on leaders. You would gather tens of thousands of data points on on leaders across the world, and you looked at 67 different competencies. What are the competencies that you found that best identified an effective leader? Well, we found that even though that's the popular thing or the popular way to think about that, what we found is that leaders lead in different ways. There is no such thing as a pattern of a leader and that there are a number of different combinations of competencies that can be successful. And that is to some extent dictated by the industry you're in and the phase, are are you a startup or are you a fix it or are you a maintenance? situation. So there's probably no universal pattern of a leader, even though that's the popular way to think about this. On the other hand, what we found is that people get promoted for cognitive skills and they fail for people skills or EQ. For decades, B schools, business schools taught cognitive skills and did not teach people skills in that sense. So there's a whole field called derailment research, and what it shows is about 90% of supervisors, managers, directors, leaders 
if they fail, they fail because of a lack of people orchestration skills or EQ. And that's pretty universal over the 30 years we've been looking at that data. So the, the failure is not necessarily competence. Can it be summed up as character or lack of people skills or lack of compassion, lack of empathy? Not character. It would be more likely style. What happens, of course, is we promote cognitively strong people. And what the research shows is that it's very difficult to be good at both. So this might be a capacity issue in the brain. So in your upbringing and in your education, you decide whether you're going to be cognitively strong or people strong. So people end up being sort of aggressive extroverts with cognitive skills or softer, compassionate people with people skills. And it's very rare to get a high-level leader who's got both of those. So what we find is that the people who get to the executive suite are generally cognitively strong, technically strong, and business knowledge strong, and people orchestration weak. And one of the things they have to manage is change management. And you cannot manage change cognitively. It has to be managed from an EQ standpoint. And most of the coaching that I've done over my 50 years has been coaching C-suite officers in people skills. I do not remember a single client where I was coaching on lack of cognitive skills. So people get promoted based on smarts and fail based on people skills. You mentioned change management, and that's a perfect stopping point for this segment because we are going to talk about change after the break here. Our guest is leadership guru, Dr. Robert Eichinger. When we come back from this short break, we are going to talk about the future of leadership, your brain and change, and how to more effectively use your U2 decision-making. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year, and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly, too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We are an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. We are back with Dr. Robert Eichinger. Before the break, we were discussing U1, your more impulsive decision-making brain, and U2, the executive part of your brain. And I've heard you talk about nicotine addiction, smokers, and you've cited the statistic that Doctors who say, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die, 40% of those people do not stop smoking. Why do we find change so difficult, even when our life is on the line? Well, I think it goes back again to the you, one brain. It is a nest builder. It's a comfort zone kind of a phenomena. It likes to stay with what it has. In the case of addiction, there's an additional chemical issue that is dopamine flows to your striatum, which is your reward center. 
and tends to support the behaviors that brings in dopamine. And in 2009, when I really got serious about neuroscience and neuroleadership, Dave Ulrich is the one who came up with that statistic, and I attended a conference where he made that statement. I more recently looked at the data, and it's the same. That is, 50% of people who pay for medical advice do not take the prescriptions that are prescribed. I just saw another study on uh, sleep apnea, which uh, you know can kill you. It's a very serious disease, and only 50% use the CPAP machinery that fixes sleep apnea, and sleep apnea can kill you overnight. And the same is true about other kinds of things we get addicted to. So once the brain has decided that there is a way to get this wonderful chemical dopamine, be it drugs or gambling or shopping or whatever it happens to be, alcohol, it is extremely difficult to stop that. So it is, and, and I've been fascinated since 2009 on the issue of why do people not follow the advice and counsel of experts, even in the case of paying for that expertise. And it is said that people resist change. And I think you have to be a little bit more specific. That is, U1 resists change. U2 doesn't exactly resist change. And if I look at executives in change management, they are talking to U2. It is a cognitive narrative. They say, oh, this is going to be great. We are going to make more money and more margins, and we're going to have markets around the world, and this is going to be fun, and uh, this is why this merger or acquisition is great or this change that we're anticipating. Well, all of that is U2 talk. It's narrative. That is not where change is resisted. Change is resisted at the emotional point. And I've, I've been through many of these all-hands meetings and mergers and acquisitions, and always somebody has the courage to get up in the audience and say, all of this sounds interesting. Will I have a job tomorrow? So the executive is speaking from a YouTube brain and seeing the possibilities, but the audience is listening and their U1 brain is, is listening for a threat. Is listening for the threat. How does this affect me? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to be replaced? Right. Are my friends going to be here? And I've, I've watched this for 50 years, and inevitably, somebody in those kind of all-hands meetings gets up and asks a question like that. Say, gee, this is great that we're going to dominate the world in AI chips. Am I going to be employed Monday, do I need to get my resume ready? And before the rollout of that message or that all-hands meeting... Should somebody in the executive meeting be putting on the shoes of or the hat of an employee and saying, you know, how are those folks going to react? Well, in not only employee, but it's how human brains function. So if, if you're managing a change like that, you need to, first of all, do you one narrative. Right. Say, uh, welcome to the meeting. Uh, we're all sort of both excited and scared. And let's talk about the scared part first. And here's the three things to be scared about. You know, am, am I going to be employed? And you have to say, you have to be very careful about leadership trust. 
So I've seen many people get up and say, we love everybody and we wouldn't have acquired this company unless these were good people. And then three weeks later, there's a 10,000 person layoff. Don't, you can't do that. Yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, as you know, the company that I started with a couple of other guys was bought and we announced it to the employees and we talked about all of the benefits <laughs> how what this is going to mean to them that there's going to be global opportunity that we're going to expand etc cetera, etc cetera, and nobody wanted to hear that they they talked about exactly what you discussed which is am i going to have a job this is going to be a big change i don't know these leaders are they going to have my best interest in do do i get to work here or do i have to drive further are we going to be located in a different place yeah that's right so ideal leadership of change management has to do with addressing you one first with truth and say, well, as a matter of fact, synergy is one of the reasons we're doing this. And we expect a 20% reduction in a headcount. And we're going to first try attrition and uh, see if this is going to cause people not to want to work here. Then we're going to offer voluntary packages and see how far that gets us. And then if there's any left that we have to do, then we're going to do it by merit as best subjective judgment can do. But for 80% of you, this is going to be continued employment and greater opportunity. So leaders tend not, because they're not good at EQ in general, they tend not to think about the U1 scare, that M&A or a big change or we're switching IT platforms on everybody, or we're changing locations, we're moving to another city or whatever it is. Let's talk about individual change. What are the best ways that we can change ourselves or how does that change have to occur? What are, what are the conditions that need to be there? Well, on a one-to-one -one basis, that's where some of the techniques of mindfulness come in. That is, you have to know that auto is designed to resist change. There's also another thing that happens out of U1 that's called ANTS, which is automatic negative thinking. But U1 tells us uh, not to try and juggle in public because we're going to make a butthead out of ourselves. They tell us not to stand up in the meeting and declare that you're an opponent to this idea. They say don't try to start a new business because you most likely fail. The brain has what's called a negativity bias, and it's a four-to-one ratio of negative to positive. So your U1 brain tries to prevent you from going into the woods in the first place because the U1 brain knows that there are snakes in the woods, so it would rather not deal with that. So if it can convince you not to go down this path by yourself, then it doesn't have to worry about snakes. So the U1 brain is resistant to change, not for the sake of change or not changing. It's just much more convenient and electrically efficient to keep in my patterns, keep my habits, and keep out of danger. And the number one fear that human beings have in surveys is being evaluated by others in a public speaking format. So that's even bigger scare than death. So U1 does not want to put you in a position of being evaluated by your bosses or peers. Therefore, you do not state in meetings what you really think. You do not take initiative without consensus. 
There's many things you don't do that you're capable of doing. You're not as creative as you actually can be because creativity is a risk in a work group. So the auto, who's in everybody's brain, is the source of most of what we think of as resistance to change. And I can help you as an outside coach to decrease the resistance of change, or you yourself can decide with a growth mindset and mindfulness that you're not going to allow you one to prevent you from flourishing, as you said before. So flourishing is having a growth mindset and a what we call the beginner's brain or the Buddha brain, that being open and non-judgmental about opportunities and incoming information. And you, all of us probably have, make up a number, a third more potential than we're actually doing because we're allowing the U1 brain or the auto brain to restrict doing new things, doing things differently, and considering opinions different than ours. One of the things that we've talked about in the past in, in order to enable change is this self-awareness and what are some of the techniques that you've seen used among leaders and organizations to build that self-awareness? Well, for 30 years in Lumminger, as you know, we've been using the 360 format to get information on the 67 competencies. So it's the same process, only now you're getting feedback on how your brain operates. And you can have other people comment on your behavior in the same way if they have a checklist of verbal and nonverbal and action behaviors you take that are indicative of what the U1 brain is doing. You can get feedback on that from team members. Or you can engage in executive mindfulness, which means that you become more sensitive to what your U1 brain is doing. And you have that half-second opportunity to adjust, let it go through, stop it, delay it, and let your, your supercomputer, your prefrontal cortex, think through five better ways to do this and pick better options, make better choices, make better decisions with the superior part of your brain. And all that has to do with, you have to be kind to auto. You don't want to make auto mad. So the internal dialogue is sort of peculiar because you have, when, when auto decides it needs to do something in a hurry, you have to have an internal dialogue. You literally talk to Otto. And you say, ah, Otto, you've been asleep for a while. What's the issue? This uh, boss who's in the room is going to call you out in the meeting and is going to embarrass you. And it's probably going to be bad for your career. I say, oh, you know, very interesting. Where, where, did you, where did you get that from? Well, he did it in the last meeting to somebody else, and it's sort of our turn. I say, okay. Was the information correct or incorrect? Well, it was sort of okay. But, I mean, he delivered it in a very mean way. I see. And did that person get fired that day? Well, no, they're, they're here in the meeting. Oh, okay. So if this occurs, if the boss uh, takes me on today and says something negative about my performance, although I could get fired, most likely statistical event is that I'm not. Right. Okay. So it's going to feel uncomfortable and I'm going to get embarrassed. I have to be careful about what I say after he shoots at me. So what we're going to do, Otto, is uh, we're going to wait. Uh, thanks for the alert. 
I'm going to sort of do deep breathing and I'm going to relax. And I'm, if, if in fact this event occurs, I'm going to be reflective and I'm going to not respond in any defensive way. And I'm, I'm going to thank him or her for the information that's accurate. And if it's appropriate, I might point out a point or two that's not completely accurate and uh, try and diffuse it that way. Uh, is that okay with you, Otto? Okay, good. Now, all of that, of course, is a half a second. That's incredible self-awareness, though. That's how it has to work. Yeah. And, and you're doing role-playing, right? Essentially right. With, with yourself. Right. That's, that's remarkable. And U1 is not statistical. It's not normative, like U2 is. So U1 takes each event, each threat event as a unique event and does not do math, doesn't do Bayesian probability analysis. You had talked about doing 360-degree feedback, and I know you've done this with hundreds of leaders and worked with them thousands. to thousands of leaders, okay, and worked with them to analyze their results. When, when somebody re evaluates themselves highly, but their peers and their direct reports evaluate themselves lowly. What percentage of those people dismiss the results? The other way to talk about that is we get about 25% penetration of delivering feedback to executives of a negative nature. What does that mean? About 25% of people accept the feedback and do something. <laughs> okay, so, the, so it's, it's really small. Really small. Regardless of what the feedback is? No, negative. Oh, if it's negative feedback. Okay, critical so one in, one in four who are receiving critical feedback. critical feedback accept it. Okay. And, now and, how do, and, and, and so let's talk about those folks, those three out of four who do not accept it. Yeah. What do you do? We've collected a list of 28 reasons why the data is not correct. So, and this is very stable. So it's your fault. Very stable. It's Bob's fault. Well, no, no. The, so on this list are things like people are jealous of my success. Okay. So they um, rationalize it. My boss doesn't like me. But it says here, I, all of your peers don't either. <laughs> and your direct report. I'm not really like this, but my boss asked me to act this way. I wasn't like this in my last job. So there are 28 of those things. So when we get into a situation where somebody has feedback that could be career threatening, then I give them an opportunity. I say, be, before we discuss this, here's a checklist for you. I'd like to read this over so that we don't wait, because we've only got two hours. Go through the checklist and check three to five of these 28 reasons why the data isn't right so that we can move on. And it's a, it's a softening device because they immediately understand that we're talking about being defensive and not being open and being judgmental of others. We also talk about, we go a different direction and say, uh, what is your legacy? You know, what's on your tombstone? Is your picture gonna be in the hall of flame or the hall of fame? So what do you wanna be seen as? What, how do you want people to talk about you? And I'm an expert at behavior change, so I can help you do this. But on the other hand, I'm very busy and independently wealthy, so I'm not going to waste your time. If you're not interested in being better, then why don't we just shut this down and I need to get back to my airplane and go home because you obviously, and I'm going back to my knowledge of so few people take prescriptions and the CPAP machine and all smoking. Uh, people 
mostly don't change. And I'm not going to sit there for two hours and fight somebody on changing. I can help anyone change who wants to change. The battle of getting somebody to change who doesn't think there's anything wrong with them is extreme. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about three topics, women, artificial intelligence, and leaders who know their weaknesses. And let's start with leaders who know their weaknesses. We were talking during the break that there are great leaders who are very self-aware, who know what their weaknesses are. So for example, somebody who might be a little prickly, but a very effective executive, and they may surround themselves with a people person. Can you talk a little bit about that as a strategy and does it work? We uh, studied a group of legacy executives, people who others would agree are outstanding leaders. And we basically asked them how they discovered their weaknesses and what they did about them. And we were quite surprised by the information because we had spent 30 years getting people to work on their weaknesses. And what the data said is that any given role or job can be defined by about 13 to 15 competencies or skill sets. But the uh, truly outstanding leaders were only outstanding at about four to seven of the 13 to 15. And what we found is that people like that tended not to fix weaknesses because they had done that before in their lives. They know it takes 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell told us that. And they didn't want to do that again. So the key is, first of all, do I have flat spots? Do I have developmental opportunities? Do I have weaknesses? They get it through 360 and other feedback and self-observation looking in the mirror. And then the key is, what do you do about it? And the legacy executives said, well, the easiest thing I do is I delegate it. So they hire their weaknesses. Bad leaders clone themselves and hire people identical to themselves. And therefore, the whole team has the weakness of the leader. So if he's dismissive and aggressive, he hires people who are dismissive and aggressive because they like each other. So legacy leaders said, well, the easiest thing I do, if, if I don't have EQ or I don't have people skills, I hire a strong person who's, who's good enough on the cognitive skills to be on the team but they're excellent at dealing with customers and stakeholders and employees. The second thing is they compensate. So there's a strategy called compensation. So if I tend not to be a very good presenter, I may, but I'm a funny person, I may use humor to compensate for not being an outstanding presenter. And I put Dilbert cartoons in all of my PowerPoint slides and that has made me a better presenter, even though technically I haven't become a better presenter. Or they use a substitution strategy that is among my four to seven outstanding skills. Could I blend or meld them together in any way that sort of covers for what I'm not good at? So we were sort of taken aback at that, that legacy leaders, once they found a weakness, didn't work on it. But now that all makes sense to me as I watch leaders today. The outstanding leaders delegate their weaknesses. I agree. It takes an incredible amount of energy to improve a weakness. And if you can continue to enhance your strength and, and then fill in the weakness, that I think that's a much more effective way of going about it. Well, then it all starts with self-awareness. If, if you're not 100% awareness of the good, bad, and ugly, then you cannot get to be a legacy leader. You won't fill in the gaps, right? Mm -hmm. 
We have talked in the past about women in leadership roles, and you have a belief that, and it's, I'm sure it's supported by data, that women are positioned to be more effective leaders. Why do you say that? In general, women are better at EQ skills than men, and men are better at cognitive skills than women. That may be nature, it may be nurture, it may be cultural, we don't know. That's just the way the data is. So women tend to be better at managing people, and men tend to be better at managing things. AI, I think, is going to decrease the value of cognitive skills because AI has to do with analytics, has to do with critical thinking, problem solving, the management of numbers. And I think AI's first penetration is going to be in cognitive skills. I've watched it in my doctor's office. I've noticed in the last three years that the doctor is entering my symptoms into a systems a symptom checker. Didn't do that before. And the symptoms checker has been put together by outstanding clinicians and diagnosticians, and many times will come up with lupus or Lyme disease where the primary physician didn't think about that. So in the same sense in business, making decisions on who I might acquire, who I should merge with, that's going to be taken over, I think, by AI or at least greatly assisted. Therefore, I think the future leader would be cognitively okay assisted by AI, but the key thing in global diversity management of stakeholders would have to be strong in EQ. And I think that's sort of the definition of the upcoming cadre of women who are stronger than men in people skills and equivalent to men in cognitive skills. So I think the AI revolution is going to bring an increased proportion of women into the C-suite. I want to get back to AI for a moment because in a previous conversation, we were talking about the medical fields and the prediction that you had around how medical school may evolve and take advantage of artificial intelligence. Could you talk about that a little bit and, and the importance of empathy from physicians? I worked uh, with a medical school in uh, New York as part of my consulting. And when I was talking to the dean of the medical school, and, and medical school is sort of broken up into two pieces. One is the academic piece, which is the first three to four years. And then the second is the clinical piece where you're working out with patients. And he made the comment that people who made high grades in the academic portion tended not to do well in the clinic. And it was sort of the medium students who got through the academic piece but did not flourish, who tended to flourish in the clinical environment. Well, that first three to four years is anatomy and physiology and differential diagnosis and all of those kinds of things. And my guess is that AI in the medical field is going to be able to give a a physician access to that first three to four years of education, which may go down to two years. If differential diagnosis, which many older physicians will claim is an art, not a science, 
and they get very disturbed when you say it's going to be taken over by a computer. But if 20 outstanding clinicians agree on 100 symptoms and what those symptoms add up to, and then you add which tests should you run to confirm what the AI diagnostic app says, and then the medical doctors can still do what they do subjectively, it could be that the beginning of med school gets truncated into a shorter amount of time, and then bedside manner and dealing with patients and change management. Talk about leaders in industry. Uh, physicians have to be change management experts also, because if you don't take your pills, I can't help you. A couple of quick questions for you. What advice do you have for a new first-time CEO? Besides everything else you do, uh, become a brain master. Study neuroleadership and, and, and become, it increases the depth of your understanding of why people are doing what they're doing, and it increases your ability to, to do change management. And same question for a first-time manager. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. It's almost as if we've been given the gift of a third better skill set. You know, if, if I could teach a batter to get better at understanding where the ball's going to hit the strike zone and which way is it turning, I could increase your batting average. It's the same thing. Management is a muscle. Leadership is a muscle. You need to learn how to use it and develop it. Last question for you. Who is the best leader you've ever worked for as an employee and why? My first boss out of college, I probably would not be sitting here today if I didn't have. Uh, and now that I think back on it, he had a beginner's brain. He used Buddha's brain. He listened to every stupid thing I had to offer and would calmly tell me what's right about that and what's wrong about that. Very patient person. And I was, I was a very crude and rough graduate. I, was not, I didn't go to finishing school. So that boss probably put me in shape to do the rest of what I've done in life. Did he allow you to be curious? Oh, yeah. And, and allowed me to fail. Having known you for about 10 or 15 years, that's the thing that I see about you that's, that's very obvious is that you're a very curious person. Yeah, I love to know how things work. Well, Dr. Robert Enger, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being a genius. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.